Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Garland Vance. Uh, Garland is the founder on and CEO of Advanced Leadership, a consulting firm, and also the author of Getting Unbusy. Uh, Garland, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Richard. I am thrilled to be here. Right, and it's early morning for you. Tell us where you are. Uh, so I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is on the east side of Tennessee. So it's about nine in the morning for me here. Right. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh... I've not spent that much time uh, in that part of the world. Uh, I'm trying to think. I have, I have been down south at one point. Um, I really, really, uh, yeah, the, the stereotype of the southern ho- hospitality I found to be absolutely true, right? <laughs> yeah. Very warm, welcoming. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are uh, tons of nice people here. In fact, when we moved into our neighborhood, our new neighbors came out and said, um, Oh, can we make you hamburgers and and uh, French fries today for lunch? And we had never met them before, so yeah, it's it's a wonderful place to live. Yeah, I remember doing uh, Nashville. That's where we did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I and love we did Nashville. a few of the bars, and yeah, it was it was it's a lot of fun actually. Yeah, it's great good. Place. Uh, so I must say, like before we dive in, I, I read a lot of books for this this podcast, and um, sometimes you know they enhance my knowledge in one place or another. Sometimes I think, oh, this could be great for the audience. And then sometimes I read a book and I think this is definitely going to change my life in some way. And I've got to say, <laughs> this book is in that category. Uh, oh, wow. Getting, um, I'm busy. I, I, already I'm starting to make some concrete changes and I can start to see how this is really going to make an impact on my life. And it's not that often you can say that about a book, right? So, Well, yeah. thanks. I appreciate that. So, yeah. No, yeah. I, I think we can end the podcast there. Just go buy the book. <laughs> It'll change your life. That's all you need to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. And so, so getting unbusy, this is, this is, uh, yeah, this is the, obviously the, the title of the book and really the, the invocation of the book, right? Is to, yeah. is to get unbusy yourself. And let's, you know, take us to the moment, the pivot point when you, cause you, as I understand it from reading the book, you made this decision yourself, right? Yes. So yeah. maybe should we start there with, with that pivot point in your life when, Sure. So, so, you know, background is I've always been a type A personality. I have always had big goals and, and uh, pushed myself pretty hard. Um, and back in 2013, I started having all of these physical problems that I could not explain. I was having chronic migraine headaches and uh, exhaustion where I'd wake up exhausted and go to bed exhausted. Uh, I was having forgetfulness and, and even having like these, um, th- this, uh, th- like sweats and, and heart palpitations where I'd literally be sitting at my desk and all of a sudden I would start pouring sweat and my heart would start racing. So I started getting really concerned and went to my doctor. His name was Dr. Tate. And I said, Hey, what's going on? I've got these symptoms. You got to tell me what this is. Is it a brain tumor? You know, is something going on that's really serious? And he said, well, tell me about your life. And I said, well, well, you know, I have a really good life. I'm just really busy, right? And, and that's what everybody says. You know, just run into a friend at a coffee shop and say, how are you doing? And they'll say, well, I'm really good. I'm just busy. So I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm good, doc. I'm just busy. And he said, well, tell me what busy means. And I said, well, I've got, I work for this nonprofit and I work 50 to 60 hours a week and I'm working on my doctorate in leadership and uh, that takes 10 to 20 hours a week and I travel about 60 days a year and we're helping our church start some new leadership programs and my wife and I have three kids at home and they're, uh, you know, involved in the community and so I really like my life. It's just a little busy 
And it was at that moment, Richard, that my, my doctor looked me in the eye, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Garland, I'm concerned for your life. And that really got me nervous. And I said, well, well, why? And he said, because stress is what's killing you. And if you, and, and I said, well, wait, 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 why am I stressed out? And he said, because you're so busy. And I said, well, yeah, doc, everybody's busy. And I, and he responded and said, I know, and it's killing us all. And he went on to say, Garland, if you don't get unbusy, you're going to die an early death. And it was at that moment that I really began to say, maybe this busyness thing that we all talk about and we all brag about is actually doing some significant damage to me and to everybody else who's talking about it. Right. Uh, and I, I, yeah, and I guess it, but you took it, uh, I suppose a lot, you, you took that question a lot deeper than most might. I mean, most might have the doctor say, Hey, you're too busy. And I guess maybe a common response to that would be, okay, maybe I've got to cut down a bit or, you know, in a few areas uh, in my life. But it seems to me that you, you sort of really took that question and, and, and sort of really got to the heart of what it meant to be busy. And then of course, then what it means to be unbusy. So right. what do you think was the, that deeper driver to go so far with it? Well, so I was working on my, on my doctorate in leadership, and um, it was getting close to time for me to pick my dissertation. And I just began to think about all of the leaders who I had worked with over the years and how many of them talked about how busy they were, how stressed out they were. You know, and I kept hearing words like uh, overwhelm and exhaustion and burnout and I just kept thinking to myself, this can't be just a problem that I have. And so I decided to start researching what is busyness? What does it do to us physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally? What does it do spiritually to us? What does it do to our productivity? And then what does it do to entire companies and organizations? And as I began to dig into it, I started realizing that this was a huge unnamed problem uh, in our world. And it was kind of like, it reminded me of uh, smoking way back when, you know, for years and years and years, smoking was considered healthy. And so everybody did it and everybody, you know, nobody was ashamed of smoking. Right, right, exactly. You've got the Marlboro man. We, We aspire to be him. And then the Surgeon General comes out and says, Uh, smoking is actually bad for you and we should stop doing this. And all this research starts coming out. And I began to realize that busyness was the smoking of our day. It was something that all of us talked about, that all of us aspired to. And yet underneath it all, it was actually killing us. And it was taking away the, not only the quality or not only the quantity of life, but also the quality of life that we all wanted to enjoy. And so I just kind of made this resolution of, I'm going to study this and figure out what it takes to move from this stress, overwhelm, and exhaustion to purpose, productivity, and peace. Right. And, but that's also interesting because so it's almost as if you 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 inherently sense that productivity because uh, because I, I can kind of get the, the the peace part and and maybe the purpose part but the productivity that's the thing I'm still to be honest with you is there's some part of my mind won't give in to your message which is <laughs> no 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 Richard if you if you take out some commitments your productivity will go up and 
I, you know, so, so how do you sort of, how does this increase in productivity emerge from taking away commitments? Yeah, I think that's one of the most common challenges that people experience. And so I think that first you have to define what productivity is. So for most people, productivity is what I call achievement. It's how many things can I check off of my list every day, right? Did I accomplish 60 tasks, 100 tasks? Wow, I'm feeling really great about myself. But true productivity isn't about the number of tasks you complete. It's about progress toward your big goals and your high priorities. And so when we begin to change our definition of productivity, then our view on it inherently changes as well. So for example, um, today, if I sat down and I said, the only thing that I did was write 10,000 words for my next book, that's a hugely productive day. Maybe that only takes me four hours, five hours to do versus somebody who says, you know, I, I worked 12, 13, 14 hours today. What do you have to show for it? Like, what are the actual results that, that you got? So when we begin to strip away some of the overcommitment from our life, we have less interruptions, we can focus more, and we can actually think longer and harder about the big dreams and the high priorities that we actually want to accomplish. Right. So it's reframing productivity as about as progress towards the big goals. Yeah. 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 And, and even Not thinking in terms completion. of, yeah. yeah, yesterday, I, I didn't check anything off my list, but I, I played a board game with my family. We made pizza together. We uh, watched a movie and spent time together. We had a long conversation. Was that a productive day? Well, yeah, because one of my long-term dreams is to have great relationships with my kids. That was a highly productive day in spite of the fact that I really didn't check anything off my list. Right, right. But but there's still, I guess, so let's talk about the Marlboro Man, right? So it feels <laughs> to me like right now, if, if Marlboro Man was the iconic hero of the smoking lifestyle, then maybe Elon Musk is our iconic, iconic hero of the busyness lifestyle. You know, because that guy has bragged about working 100 hour weeks. And I look at, in a, you know, he's a, he's a sort of avatar for achievement, isn't he? He's, right you know, these extraordinary achievements of, of founding multiple billion dollar companies, of, of defying the odds in so many areas of life. And, and yet, surely we'd look at him and say, well, he's the epitome of busyness and he's productive, super yeah. productive. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of us aspire to be somebody like an Elon Musk who is, you know, working crazy hours, has this huge amount to show for it. But the fact that he is such an aberration, in my mind, in a lot of ways, proves the, the idea of what the rest of us are experiencing as busyness. So first, let's understand what busyness is. It's an overcommitment to too many good commitments. Uh, most people think that they're, they're busy and they'll say, well, you know, I, I say no to things that I don't want to do. Everybody says no to things that they don't want to do. What busyness is, is it saying yes to too many of the things you do want to do at one time. And what Elon Musk has done is he has been incredibly successful because he's said yes to a very small number of, of things in the, in the grand scheme of things. And he's worked ridiculous hours to get there. 
but I, I don't know that I would hold him up as the person who I want to aspire to when it comes to family life, uh, when it comes to, uh, personal growth and development, you know, when it comes to, um, investing in my community, I'm not, I don't know enough about him to say that, you know, that, that he's not doing those things, but, but most of us are so busy trying to do work and home responsibilities and community service. And maybe there's church thrown in there. And, you know, we've got all of these commitments that it ends up being where, all of these good commitments have left left us stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed. Right. So in some, in some ways he does, he does fit your, your narrative in the sense that, or your thesis in the sense that he is saying yes to a very small number of things. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I think that's where he's different now. Should he take some days off? Absolutely. You know, I think, in fact, I think his ideas, I think the research is, is showing that his ideas would be fresher and better and probably get more done in less time if he took some time off. But he really has narrowed down his window of focus to a very small number of things. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and, and the key to this is, uh, which I found interesting, or a key to this ability to focus, and something that I'm now really taking on, is this idea of no by default. Yes. So tell us about yeah. that. So most busy people uh, have this tendency, and, and I call it they default to yes and defend their no. And so default to yes means when somebody asks you to do something, you automatically say yes. You don't even think about it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I can do that. And then you're stuck going, oh, gosh, how am I going to get that done? So they, busy people tend to default to yes. And then they defend their no, meaning that if uh, someone asks them to do it and they say no, they then start giving all of the reasons why they can't, right? I, they'll say, um, you know, oh, I've got a commitment at that time, or, um, you know, I've just got too much to do. And as soon as we start defending our no, then people can start battling against that a little bit, you know, like, oh, I've just got too much to do. Well, this will only take a few hours or no, I've got a commitment at that time. No problem. We'll rearrange it. What unbusy but highly productive people do is they default to no and defend their yes. And so defaulting to no means as soon as somebody asks you to do something, whether that's another project at work or, you know, whether it's you asking yourself to do something, your default answer becomes no. No, I'm probably not going to do that. You may not even say it out loud. You may just think it in your head. No, I'm probably not going to, to do that. And then unbusy and highly productive people defend their yes. They actually put the burden of proof on the yes. I've got to be convinced that this is worth my time and energy and attention to do. And so in order to do that, in order to defend your yes, you want to make sure first that your yes is slow. So a lot of times I'll say, hey, I need 24 to 48 hours to think about this decision. So just, you know, giving yourself some space to slow down. Second, I try to make sure that my yes is careful. In other words, I don't just think about the, uh, the one commitment that you're asking me to do, but the ripple effect of that commitment. So when you and I were scheduling this podcast, in the back of my mind, I know this isn't just a one-hour podcast because I've got to set up my uh, microphone and make sure that my lighting is okay and get my internet where it's spot on and talk to my kids about not running downstairs and, you know, making noise. And so all of those things have to happen. So it's a little bit longer than that. So defending your yes means you move slow, you move carefully in 
in saying yes. And then finally, you try to remove a commitment before you add another commitment into your life. And as you do that, especially if you're getting rid of the commitments you really don't want to do, not only are you spending your time doing things that you love to do more and more, but you're also not adding more commitments into your life. Yeah. Yeah. And the other powerful point I think you made underlying this was um, this sense of being enough, which, yeah. which really hit, hit home for me when I read mm. it. It definitely brought yeah. a lump to my throat. What, what, tell <laughs> us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I first started researching busyness, I really thought it was a, a calendar issue, that it was a, a time management issue. You know, I just don't know how to manage my time. Well, the problem with that was um, I had read by that point about 300 books and articles on time management. Like I knew all of the time management principles and practices that I could imagine. And I was still too busy. So I knew that there had to be something more that was going on than simply a calendar or a time management issue. And it really came through a lot of soul searching and reading that I, I realized that busyness is more about uh, some inhibiting beliefs that we have. And the primary inhibiting belief that we have is I am not enough. I need to be more. And so what ends up happening is we convince ourselves, you know, we, we have this idea of, you know, I should be a better dad. I should be a better CEO. I should be fill in the blank, right? I should be a better community member, whatever we want to call it. I should be better in this regard. And as soon as we start having that thought, we start feeling shame because the person who we are right now does not measure up to the person who we want to be. And the only way that most people know to respond to that is to say, what do I need to do in order to be enough? What do I need to do in order to make myself more? And that just adds more and more commitments into our lives. And in our attempt to make ourselves more, we end up actually making ourselves less because we add so much pressure and exhaustion into our lives that we don't have time to focus on the person who we actually want to become. So there's just this inhibiting belief that really drives a lot of our busyness of I'm not enough. I need to be more. And man, it's still, even for an unbusy person, I'll, I'll tell you, I still struggle with that thought regularly where I'll convince myself, you know, I'll say to myself, gosh, I should be better at this. And I, just learning though to step back and say, this may not be false, but it's certainly going to be an inhibiting belief. Is it true? And if so, what do I need to do about it? Or is it just something that I'm feeling right now and I don't need to take any action? Right. And, and we spoke before, because one of the other things you talk about is the, this idea of taking a Sabbath, taking a day of, of, of complete day of rest. Yeah. We were just joking before that I, just a few weeks ago, I was invited in by this community to have like one day off in the year where you do nothing. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> man, you should read Garland's book, right? So one day off a week where we do nothing. And I've, so I, I tried this, not the Sunday, just gone the Sunday before recording this now on a Monday. And I tried it again yesterday. Mm. A Sunday where I, 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 you know, I really tried to do, and I pretty much did nothing. Good. And, and I have to say, I fought all, you know, like multiple days during the day. I, I, it was a real, it was a real fight. It was like, 
okay, deep breath, you know, don't take <laughs> something on, don't do something. Don't, it, 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 and, you know, I've part of my journey overcome several addictions, but it feels like I've uncovered another addiction that, that there's this little voice saying, no, 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 you know, do, do something, do, do something, do something, do something, make yourself feel like you're productive. Yeah, right. right. Which I guess is why I wrestle so much with that element of the title, you know, like do, do something valuable, do, do, do something, you know. And to yeah. just to let that voice go and just be like, no, 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 take a nap, you know, read a bit of this book. You know, do, it, yeah, it's, it was a challenge. It is. It is. And, and it doesn't all, it, you know, I've been practicing it now for uh, seven years and there are still Sabbath days that where, where it's a, a challenge to, to recognize that pulling back and not doing anything productive or any work is actually one of the most productive things that you can do. You give your mind a rest, you give your body uh, a rest, you know, you can put gas in a car and run it until it's exhausted, or you can stop, take the car to the shop, get it tuned up. You can take it to the gas station, fill it up with gas. All of those little rest periods help renew and refill. And you and I are the same way we do better work and we do more productive work when we've had a rest. So let me just say, if I can, let me say one thing yeah. about Sabbath um, for the, the listeners here. So um, what I will talk about a lot of times is Sabbath is a day and, and it doesn't matter what day you take it. For me, most, most of the time I'm taking it on Fridays uh, and my wife and I have a date day, but, but Sabbath is um a day where you commit to do nothing that feels like work and work is uh, anything that drains you mentally, physically, emotionally. So for me, working in, uh, in my yard is exhausting. I hate working. I hate cutting the grass. I hate weed eating. I would never do that on a Sabbath, but I have a friend who loves to mow the lawn. He loves to get out and to, to weed eat and to work in his garden. For him, that's actually very life-giving and a great thing for him to do on Sabbath. And so part of understanding what Sabbath looks like for you in particular and, and for each listener out there is understanding what are the things that bring me life and bring me energy and how do I build one day a week around those things? And then the other six can be about the work and the accomplishment and, and everything else. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that makes sense because, because <laughs> unless we literally lie in our bed all day, <laughs> right. yeah, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to fill our Sabbath with something, but with something, something that feels like pleasure, that something yes. that doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel yeah. like I get it. Yeah. Um, yes. I, uh, and, and what was interesting is I came to Monday. I also, uh, this morning I had a sort of slightly groggy feeling that sort of slightly slow feeling you have, after you've been on a holiday, right? Where it's feeling like it's taking you a bit of time to sort of get back into gear. And I suspect that's, that's because I'm just getting into this, right? I can imagine yeah. that after a while of doing these Sabbaths and somehow the system has started to regulate yeah. uh, more effectively, then you don't get so much of that the day after a Sabbath. Would that be right? Yeah, that would be right. So I, I call it a Sabbath hangover a lot of times right. that you've, you know, you've kind of disengaged so, so well that stepping back into productivity sometimes can be really challenging. I recommend that most people end up having some kind of 
end of Sabbath ceremony, whether it's just you personally or whether it's with your family, but something that marks Sabbath is over and I'm actually moving back into productivity. So for a while, my family's not doing it right now, but when we first started practicing Sabbath, one of the things that we would do is we would get to the end of Sabbath. We would come together and we would do just this little ceremony where we would say, um, Hey, what was the highlight of Sabbath for you, right? Where, who was the person you connected with or the rest that you got? What was something that, that you, you know, can look back on and go, wow, I'm really glad I took this off. And then once we had that conversation, we would move into about 20 minutes of cleaning up the kitchen because that was the one room that just got demolished during Sabbath. And so we would just have about 20, 30 minutes of cleaning up the kitchen, which sparked our work back again. And then that was it. Okay, now it's time to, to go to bed. Uh, so we would do it at the end of the day. But that little act right there helped us get past the Sabbath hangover and into, okay, we've transitioned out of Sabbath and now we're back into the work week. Right, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and well, and that reminds me of something else you said in the book, which is now it's also something I'm practicing, and that's uh, and I, this I guess pertains a little bit more to the peace element of your message, and that's uh, this idea, or at least for me it does, is this idea of transitions. Hmm. So could you talk a yeah. little bit about that? I, I guess that was just an example you gave there of moving out of Sabbath, but yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so um, so a transition happens anytime you switch from one task to another task or from one role to another role, right? From work role to home role. Anytime you're going through a transition, uh, that, that's what it means to, to go through one of those. Well, th- there was this change management guru uh, named William Bridges. He's, he's passed away at this point, but he, had, um, he made the point that change doesn't actually kill us, but it's the transitions to change that kill us, right? And so I started, as I started thinking about that, I was like, well, how many transitions do I go through every day? And the answer is all of us go through dozens of them, right? We transition from from sleep to awake, from home to work, from one meeting to the next meeting, from uh, an email about one subject to an email about another subject. We transition then from, you know, work back to home. All of these, we're going through dozens of transitions every day and transitions can be exhausting. And so one of the ways that you get unbusy is by learning to manage those transitions. I actually call it tame your transitions because they're just kind of this wild animal that will take over your life unless you take care of it. Um, So one way to do that is to batch your work together. That's become a popular topic recently of of learning how to, you know, uh, so instead of uh, working on your budget uh, seven days a week, you you batch all of your budget action items on one single day. you, uh, I practice this with my meetings. I try to batch all of my meetings on Tuesday. And Tuesdays are exhausting, but I'm not transitioning back and forth between all of these ideas. I'm just focused on I'm going to meet. I'm not going to get a lot of other things accomplished that day. So you want to batch work together. But another thing that, that people often miss out on is learning how to create intentional transitions where they they are moving from one role to another or from one task to another, and they intentionally create a little ritual 
that helps them move into that. So uh, I give an example in the book of uh, a man named Oliver, and he would always struggle with transitioning from his job to transitioning to his home. Now, this was back before everybody was working from home. Um, but he, he really struggled with that. And he would uh, walk in and see his family, and, but he would still be on the phone and still have work things, and he's still checking his email. And we just I'm just surprised him. at the number of rows I've had with my partner. You know, still <laughs> on a work call as I come in the front door. <laughs> right, right, yes. Uh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't go over well. <laughs> doesn't and go uh, well. doesn't create a smooth transition into home. And so I worked with Oliver just to create a, a real smooth transition. So he would check about 15 minutes. He would have a timer that, uh, you know, 15 minutes before the end of the day, he had a timer that went off. He would check his last email. He would actually shut down his computer. Um, and then... And on the way home, he would listen to music that relaxed him or go uh, sit home in silence. And then when he pulled into his neighborhood, he would actually pull his car over on the side of the road and he would say a quick prayer for his family and set his intention to say, what do do I want to look like when my kids see me for the first time? What do I want to look like? And as he pulled into his, his garage, he just put on this huge smile because he wanted his family to know as soon as he walked in the door that he was thrilled to see them. And that little transition not only reduced significant stress at home from when he came home, but it allowed him to shut off the work that he was doing and transition well into being a dad and into being a, a husband that, that he really wanted to be great at. And so building these intentional transitions, you don't need them all day long, but there's probably two or three transitions that you go through every day that where you need an intentional transition to help you. Yes. And I, I find myself even doing it with your, your book because I've, I've listened to your book uh, and it's, it's very good. But those, uh, you know, Thanks. That author has a great voice, right? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I, I find myself taking on your advice and I drive, I currently work in a co-working space, right? So I drive mm-hmm. about 25 minutes from my home to my co-working space. And, I, and there's, a, there's a set of lights just before I turn into to where the co-working space is located. And I, I turned off the audio book, right? I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. Garland, enough. <laughs> and i just gave myself a couple of minutes where i'm in silence in the car you know pulling into the campus finding my spot getting my stuff together but i noticed that you know because i'm i always well very often listen to audiobooks in the car or podcast or whatever and i'm still all in the podcast or the book as i'm trying to collect my stuff together and you know find my way to my my desk and you know that was just one one aspect of my life i noticed where i i wasn't conscious of that transition at all and i wasn't doing anything to manage that transfer transition and i found i something somewhat more peaceful start to the day by just that that tiny adjustment so. yeah good i'm glad you you tried it out yeah that's a great way to build an, an intentional transition into life yeah yeah now um the other thing i suppose that might be useful for our listeners to to consider is just from your personal experience of this what um what what was the hardest aspect of this journey for you in getting unbusy and what and what did you you know learn going through through that well i so for me uh, the hardest part is something that i tried to make really easy in the book um for me the hardest part was i could read articles about beating busyness or the dangers of busyness about productivity all of those things 
but there wasn't anybody who I could find who could give me a step-by-step process to go through to, to beat it. And so I had to spend literally years researching it, trying to figure out how do you actually do this? It's because it couldn't just be about, ah, put a little practice here and, you know, do, you know, do this action there. I, I truly believed there had to be a, steps that, that, uh, you took. So it took me about three, three and a half years to figure out what are those steps and how do I go? And, and, and that's why when I, when I wrote the book, I I talk about the five steps to kill busyness and live with purpose, productivity, and peace. So step one is you have to decide, uh, you have to decide that busyness isn't worth it. Step two, you start deconstructing some of those inhibiting beliefs and bad habits uh, and unwanted commitments that keep you stuck in busyness. Step three, you design the life that you actually want to live. You know, what are your dreams and priorities? What are the best practices? And I, I walk people through the four best practices of, of unbusy, highly productive people. Uh, step four is then you design and that's when you actually begin to implement it. That's the first time I began talking about time management and calendar management. Um, And then step five is you draw other people in. You begin to bring in your family, your friends and your coworkers. So, you know, to answer your question, I, that was for me, the hardest part was figuring out those steps. And it's the part that I worked really hard to make as simple as possible for the people who were reading, getting unbusy. Mm. Okay. That's so for me, for you, it was more of the, the practicalities of, you know, how do I have a, like a system that right. allows me to have this happen in my life? Right. right. And, you know, I talk about systems in the book and how important mm. those are. And, and I did, I needed a system to help me walk through that. Um, and so I was making small changes here and there and tweaks. And then once I started figuring out what the system was, then everything changed where it was like, I know how to beat busyness now. Right. Right. And I guess that gave you the courage or the confidence then to write the book and get it out there. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned there how, how this sort of, and you talk about it in the book, how this sort of can then seep out into your family and to, to organizations. Yeah. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how this then manifests. Well, maybe let's start, especially in the workplace. If, if a leader, individual leader decides to get unbusy, you know, what can then emerge? Yeah, that's been, I think a lot of times the most exciting thing is when I work with an organizational leader and work with them to beat busyness. And as they begin to see their own productivity increasing, their own um, focus increasing, uh, then they'll go, well, why wouldn't I implement this in my entire team and my entire organization? So what ends up, I think the, what's, what's really exciting with it is when you begin to see an entire group of people start saying, let's get rid of some unwanted commitments. What are the meetings that we're having right now that really don't serve a purpose? We've just been doing them forever. And, you know, what are the, um, what are our highest priorities? How do we shrink those priorities down? Um, and then for me, one of the most effective practices I've seen within organizations is when they're doing their planning, um, most teams, most organizations, as they go into strategic planning, quarterly planning, yearly planning, whatever it is that they're doing, what they tend to do is add more and more and more to what they're already doing. 
And so I, I take teams through what I call the, this SIM practice, uh, S-I-M-M. And once you start identifying what's really important to you, the first question is, what do you need to stop? That's the S. You're doing some things that probably are no longer necessary if those are your priorities. Second, what do you need to initiate? Uh, what are the new practices that you need to build into your team and into your life in order to make those priorities happen? Those are the things that take the most energy, but that's also where most people concentrate. That's why we introduce stop first. Then the first M uh, stands for maintain. What is it that you just, what, what is good enough right now? Very few organizations ask that question. What's good enough right now that we really don't need to focus on it. And that can be a very exhaustive list. And, uh, but, but it's just a team's commitment to say, we're not going to touch this for the next 90 days, for the next year. Good enough is good enough on this. And then the final one, the final M is maximize. What is it that we currently are doing that we can make small improvements to and get good or even great results from those small improvements? Um, that exercise, I think, really helps teams to solidify how they're going to accomplish their priorities without adding a huge amount of extra work into their lives. Yeah. And what struck me when I was reading that part of the book was you, you talked about leaders just saying, no, no, we've got one priority for this, for this, quarter, yeah. for the, just, you know, and, and I, I work with so, yeah, because I do a lot of this sort of work, you know, coaching executives and so. Yeah, and that can be a huge challenge, right? To, it is. When, when I push back on them, because I've, I've sort of heard this message through other, through other writers and people on goal setting, and that can be very, very hard. What do you mean just one? <laughs> right. <laughs> I have 15 priorities, yeah. But the research that's out there will we'll show you is in the four disciplines of execution is where I first saw it, is if your team has uh, 11 or more goals that there or priorities that they're working on, you have almost no chance of accomplishing it. If you have four to 10 goals, you have like a 10 to 20% chance of accomplishing it. But if you have only two or three goals, your chances of accomplishing those goals shoot to 90 to 95%. Why would you possibly focus on more than three goals knowing that the chances of that are, are diminishing? Right, yeah. And I think that's such, such an important goal. Cool, but it, it comes back underlying, though, I think, for that individual leader and then to, to take that as a sort of leadership stance into the organization is, you know, we are enough. We are enough. enough. This priority is enough. Yeah. Well, these two goals or three, this is it. It's enough. Yeah. And these processes, they're good enough. Let's yeah. leave them. Come and back sometimes... to the next quarter or next quarter. You know, that, yeah. That, you know, it, it is essence. It's that, that start, that leadership stance seems to be the, what you're getting to. Yeah. And, and that's a hard thing to do as a leader. And, and I would even encourage leaders. Sometimes you just need to shrink how long your priorities are. We tend to think in terms of yearly and quarterly, but maybe it for some leaders, maybe it's thinking in terms of, I know the goals that I'm trying to hit for the quarter, but this is going to be our priorities for this month. And we're only going to focus on two or three priorities for this month. In addition to the ongoing work that needs to get done. And then we'll, uh, you know, we'll move on to the next month. So sometimes it's just shrinking our timeline so that we can actually accomplish more in less time, but we only make it a 
you know, here's our two week sprint or here's our month long uh, priorities. Um, I think that helps leaders a lot of times just to shrink the timeline. Yeah. And funnily enough, who, who comes back into mind as we talk about this is Elon Musk again, right? I mean, because he is somehow both the exemplar of unbusyness or your message and the antithesis of it. But he, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, let's look at the, the Tesla journey. He's like, okay, we're going to build a sports car. We're going to build a great sports car and we'll focus on that. And then when we've done that, we'll, we can think about a more affordable car, right? Yeah. He's like, okay, but for now, this is it. And even yep. when he's, you know, I remember some of the commentary about his production targets for the, uh, I can't remember which version the Tesla is, but again, it was like, okay, this, this is, this is it. This is our one goal. We're going to hit this production target, and and that's what we're focused on. And I think he he seemed to be able to take that singular focus and articulate yeah. a priority at a point in time. Yeah, and think about how much that helps the people who he's working with and who are working for him, and how much that would help you if you know if you're a team leader who's listening to this. How much that helps your team of saying. There's one thing, there's one major focus that we are going to have. And then they're not sitting there going, well, which is more important, right? They're, they're really able to concentrate on this is the most important thing for us to do right now. Yeah. And I find that often what, when leaders can, can struggle with that is because if one team for that, for whatever reason, that particular goal doesn't means that a particular team is less involved um, they may feel a bit like left out. So what you're saying, what we're doing isn't important anymore. And I think that that's, that's something of the leadership stance there is to say, you know, we get your important, but this, this month, right. this quarter, it's not the focus. It's not the priority. It's not to say you won't be in the future, but right now. And so it's, it's that ability to not sort of cave to all of the voices saying, no, no, no I want, I want a goal that, that, that pertains to my team or my department on, on the, you know, on the list. Yeah. Yeah, which is really people raising their hands and saying, you know, I want to be more. I want to be more. I want to yeah. be important. And and to be able, for a team leader to be able to say, you are incredibly important right now. This is the the people that we need to concentrate on this priority for this period of time. You know, you're important. It's like we you're enough. Need this team. Yeah, yeah, you like are enough. enough. You yeah. are enough, right? And uh keep we keep coming back it's almost yeah a sort of motif for the for the book it could have been the subtitle you know another subtitle for the book right <laughs> yeah, you know you're enough yes um, yeah so absolutely um now the other the other thing i wanted to touch on um and this may sort of broaden out the conversation a bit but you're, you're a christian yes and and something that that came through for me both in talking to you and in reading the book is yeah it's <laughs> there's um I suppose there's a lot of concern right now around capitalism as a, as an activity, Mm. you know, and the effect it's having on our society in terms of the way the game is played. Right. right? And that, and, you know, I think it's leading to people being drawn to more extreme political positions. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of income inequality, for example, uh, that's driving that. We're seeing a lot of concern about the, what the the effect that business is having on the environment um so there's from a from a range of different lenses there's a there's you know a concern about how business is being con- conducted although of course there's been improvements over time but there's still a concern about it and and it seems to me that you know historically we had this countervailing sort of mora- morality set that was uh, was the was the christian culture certainly in the west right Right. And we sort of 
so, so we had this on the one hand, and then we, for many of us, we had our sort of capitalistic endeavors, right? And sometimes <laughs> that, that sort of Christian, yeah, morality act as some, it feels to me like acted like some kind of break on, um, uh, our, the, I say the more, the, the extremes of our capitalistic tendencies, not always, right? Because there's plenty of examples in history where that didn't happen. But now, well, certainly in Europe and in, in the West, that, that sort of Christian morality is not as strong in people's lives as it used to be. And it seems to me like, so capitalism is just sort of become for many just about, you know, making money and making profit and growing. And there's no, there's no counterweight. Right. And right. that struck me. And it struck to me that part of, I suppose, what may be underpinning your message is a sort of almost like a, a regrounding of how we lead our lives, a, a resetting of how we live our lives as leaders in a capitalistic setting that brings in other sources of moral guidance. Yeah. <laughs> does that make sense? It, it does. I think you're painting me to be um, smarter than I, than I really am. It, you know, that was, that, that wasn't in the background, but, but I do think that my faith in Jesus Christ had a, a, a massive influence on and continues to have a massive influence on um, what I write and, and, you know, when you talk about this capitalism, the ideology of capitalism and the ideology of Christianity, I, I think for, for years, um, Christians and combined their capitalism and said, yeah, they created what came to be known as the Protestant work ethic, which is a great thing, right? Protestant work ethic. If you want something, um, and, and Protestants would say, uh, you know, if, uh, if you or the Puritan work ethic, sorry, but if you, you know, if you want something and you believe that God wants you to have that, then you should work hard for it. Well, what that resulted in is um, this idea where we completely sacrificed rest, recovery, relationships in pursuit of our goals and dreams. And uh, so what I for me, as I look at the message of Christianity in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see uh, this idea of rest, of relationships. And, and in fact, it's very rare in the Bible. You, you know, I have, I think, uh, combined 10 years of post-collegiate uh, work on, in, you know, in studying the Bible. And, and both my master's and my doctorate are from those types of institutions. And I think that that you rarely see in the Bible, God say, you need to work harder. What's wrong with you? Instead, he has almost this opposite approach of, whoa, slow down. Rest. Build into the most important relationships that you have. And I think that could also speak to these capitalistic tendencies that we have. I'm a capitalist. I'm all for making money. I just don't want to do it in a way that A, sacrifices values, B, puts me in the grave early because I've worked so hard that I've, you know, just to get money, that I've um, sacrificed my health, my life, uh, you know, friendships, all of those things. And I would even say that in bringing those two together, it's always critical to remember that the purpose of, at least from my vantage point, the purpose of making money is never just so that I can get more money. It's always about the benefit that I can give to other people. My family is part of that, but also my community and my society. 
And so bringing those two things together, I think, would um, be incredibly beneficial so that we can have a view outside of making money for myself and making money for the greater good. Yeah, that, 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 that makes sense to me. You know, that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me that, um, that we, we should take, you know, we should, it's, it's almost like venerating wisdom. That's what mm. comes to me, right? Mm. That, that we, we seem to be at an age where we, we venerate, um, you know, the ability to succeed, <laughs> the ability to make money. Um, but we talk less about, we talk less about wisdom. You know, yeah. you don't see somebody at the front page of Time magazine, you know, the wisest leader of our age. or you know, <laughs> Right. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. We talk about Absolutely. the unicorn that, you know, got faster to a billion dollar listing. And that's great. But we don't, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as, as opposed to um, trying to, uh, I guess, uh, celebrate wise choices or, or wisdom. Um, yeah. And that, that is something that I, you know, I just thought it was a broader reflection on, on reading your book and a couple of mm. other books I've read, read recently around mm. um, sort of this interest in, in, you know, how we might want to reform capitalism or yeah, at least take a different approach to it. Yeah. I love that. I, I love the idea of uh, venerating wisdom, which isn't necessarily, you can make good decisions about your business and still not be a wise person. And um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good point. And, and so how do we, sure. It's great to hold, hold out the people who are successful in business, but uh, I love the idea that you just said of, of really holding out some heroes as well, who may not be as financially successful, but who uh, have made wise choices in, in their lives. And um, uh, it would be really interesting to see who we would hold out. I, I don't know, you know, uh, I can think of tons of friends who I'd put in that category, but uh, it would be really interesting to see who would we hold out as a person who makes wise choices and is a good business leader. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good. Yeah. And, and I don't have like, but, but that probably tells us something about our culture that those figures don't immediately come to mind. Right. They're not, right. Right. They're not brought to the forefront. Um, it's yeah. Uh, that was something of a tangent, but I'm just, you know, <laughs> I just, yeah. Telling you, it also took me down that, that path. I don't think it's an accident that you're a practicing, you know, that, course it's not an accident you're practicing christian and you've written this book is that you've got a and and perhaps why your book is is something of a it's somewhat countercultural to sort of most of the business books that we read and that's because you're also you know you're also influenced by a different morality set right and you're bringing this into the business conversation and i think it makes for something quite distinctive yeah, it's it's interesting. When I was writing the book, when I first started writing the book, I went to my publisher and um, I said, I really have two options. One is to write a book for Christians, and I'm going to use the Bible verses in it and tell the Bible stories and tell you know talk about the theology. Um, and that's really where a lot of my research was was also based in was this this background in in a Judeo Christian theological framework. Um, so I said, I can I can do that. Or I can write a book to, to high achievers and to leaders and just knowing that this isn't a Christian problem. Busyness isn't a Christian problem. Busyness is just a problem. 
that we're all experiencing. And so we wrestled together and finally came to the conclusion of, no, we're going to write a book that is influenced by my Christian faith, but that is not, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, proselytizing anyone. You can get unbusy and not be a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, but my following of him has certainly influenced my thinking on this, the subject. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, um, yeah, it's a powerful book. I also think it's, it's going to have, we've talked, we've just spent the last section talking a lot about the business context, but I know in a book you talk about, you, you cite the statistic around teenagers, that teenagers today have, have the same levels of anxiety as that, which would have got you institutionalized in the fifties. Extraordinary, right? Right. Um, we're making our, we're creating this environment where our kids get so anxious and I've got yes. t- twins, three-year-old twins. And I'm already thinking, okay, um, <laughs> yeah. How yeah. can I make sure that they're not overcommitted, that they don't yeah. become busy kids? Yeah. And, and that was what was so interesting with that stat was the reason that students said they were experiencing stress was because a, they put too much pressure on themselves. Again, I am not enough, right? I need to be more. But B, because they had so many commitments, so many, you know, uh, between school, extracurricular activities, all of those things uh, that that they could not handle all of the stress. And so even our our teenagers are absorbing this message of you need to be more, you need to do more, you know, work harder, get involved. How big is your um you know, how, how big is your resume to get into to university? And, and, you know, we're putting a ton of pressure on our kids to, to take on way more commitments than they're ready for. Yeah. And it's like an extension, isn't it? It's, if I'm not enough, then, you know, I, somehow I project that onto my kids, right? My kids have got to be more, 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 right? They've got to exactly. And, and, exactly. and I, I, I find myself guilty of it. Like I'm already thinking like they're in swimming classes. Now I need to get them started in rugby and <laughs> <laughs> I want to get them boxing and, you know, I, I, I need to work on that, the yeah, literacy. Right. And yeah, it's, yeah. And I, I've caught myself a few times since reading your book, like just stopping myself in that thought process and being like, well, you know, right. Right. Yeah. Slow Good for you. Good for you. I mean, that, that is the, I, I think that's the challenge that I see parents struggle with the most is uh, saying no to their desires for their kids. Sometimes mm. the person that we have to say no to the most is ourselves. And, you know, I want my kids to be involved in all those things that you said, uh, you know, uh, swimming, rugby, uh, violin lessons, you know, uh, you play in, rugby the in, the, in the South. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want them to be involved in that. That would be awesome. No, but I mean, I would love my kids to be involved in all of those. I would love to be involved in all of those, but at some point, as parents, sometimes the best thing that we can do for our kids is to say no to our desires for them and uh, getting them involved in, in too many things. Give them, give them time for play and for unstructured, um, unplanned activities. Let, uh, we have a saying in our, uh, in our family all, all the time where um, our, our kids are committed to a few activities, but, uh, but it's certainly uh, like we have dinner together most nights and occasionally my kids will say to me, dad, you know, I'm, I'm bored. And I'll say, Hey, boredom is the seed of creativity right now. in your boredom, you are figuring out 
the challenges of the world that you're going to address one day. So be as bored as you want to be because that's where your real creativity is going to come out. Yeah. And to allow ourselves to get anywhere near to being bored, we've, we've got to feel like we're enough, right? You, you, that's exactly. almost a precondition to, to being bored is I'm enough. I can be yeah. enough. Um, yeah. and, and it's that duality, right? We've got to tell our kid, we, they've got to be enough. They've got to feel like they are enough. And then they've got to do less or at least do just enough, right? So it's, right. it's the being and the doing. We, we can't separate the two, can we? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, I'm going to... Um, for those if i hope we've whetted our listeners appetites for this for this book i'm just going to uh share uh the for those watching the the cover of the book here getting unbusy uh without the g five steps to kill busyness purpose productivity and peace um so you can obviously you could get out on amazon there's a there's a website as well tell people the url yeah so uh if you go to getting no g on the end there getting unbusybook.com uh you can actually download six free chapters uh of the book um and uh so check it out uh that'll take you all the way through step one uh so you'll hear a little bit about my story get an overview of what the book is about and then go through all of the deciding uh section Um, and there's also an assessment on there that they can get for free as well. So the assessment is I take the 20 best practices that I discovered of highly productive, but unbusy people, and they can see how they score up against those, uh, those characteristics. So it's a great place to say, oh, here's how I'm doing. If I want to be highly productive, but unbusy on a scale of, you know, zero to a hundred, what's my score? Right. Yeah, that can be very useful. Yeah. I, I have to say, I, I mean, I know this gets in a slightly darker direction, but it, it does remind me of, you know, when I was wrestling with my alcohol addiction, which is something I've mm. talked about on the show. The, the, one of the first things I, I remember having a powerful impact on me was doing an assessment and I, and I got this score and I'd always have considered, oh, you know, I'm a bit of a heavy drinker, but it's not an issue. <laughs> and then I did this survey. I was like, oh, okay. There's something I need to look at. Um, you know, so I think that sometimes those types of assessments can be very powerful as a as a mirror to your life and like okay maybe i'm a bit busier yeah. than i thought i was and maybe there's something to look at here yeah 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 i actually had a um uh he's now a client but he um he had emailed me ahead of time and he was like i'm gonna take this assessment and but i think i'm doing pretty good and it came back the lowest uh tier that you can be on is called a, a busyness addict and he came back with a pretty low score of being a busyness addict. And uh, so we, we had a really good conversation. He, he since became a client and uh, implemented it actually with his entire uh, church. He's a pastor um, and he implemented it with his entire church. And so their, their whole church is working to get unbusy. Awesome. Good. All right. Well, thank you once again, Garland. It's been a fantastic conversation oh, thank you thoroughly enjoyed the book uh i hope uh, uh we convert a few a few into uh looking at this uh and taking some action uh richard it's been my pleasure i enjoyed uh getting to know you thanks for uh you and i have joked about we're we're kind of similar looking and so uh it's fun to see a doppelganger um though i think you're the better looking of the two of oh, us oh god <laughs> Just just buttering you up so I can be on here again sometime. But, but, but you're the mul- but you're the mulber man of unbusyness. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. All right. 
Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Take care. Thank you. Take care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.